Hello, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 198. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, as always, we come to you tonight and we're hungry for your word. We're thirsty for the truth. And so we admit, Lord, that we cannot, um, we cannot embark on this endeavor without your assistance. Indeed, the purpose of what we're doing is so that we can um, worship you and honor you and glorify you. There's, there's really no other reason for us to to pour through the, your words other than to um, uh, give you the praise and the glory uh, for um, the truths that you've preserved and for um, the power of the Spirit who's working in our lives. Um, uh, Lord, you left us your words so that we can be equipped as a body and as individuals. And you have filled us with your spirit so that we can um, have fellowship with you and with one another. And so thank you that we have this opportunity to share this time, to study together, to uh, to intellectualize and to, to dialogue on the, on the text and um, to just um, uh, kind of a pray for one another and to to uh, support one another in this particular fashion. So I count it a privilege to be with those who meet with me week after week on a live basis, as well as everyone who joins me during the um, YouTube uploads and the iTunes podcast, Lord. It's a blessing to be able to interact with them as well. So just continue to raise us up, Lord, and to give us a, um, a heart to do your will and uh, um, ears to hear and eyes to see and give us kind of an enlarged capacity to understand uh, the topics that are very difficult at times to to understand. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Alrighty, these are the live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. And as I mentioned during the prayer, um, these live studies are brought to you week after week. I think I mentioned it during the prayer, but I'm telling you now, these are live studies and they are an hour long. During the live studies, you can join us live. They're called live internet studies for a reason. I don't just record these in my home studio and then upload them to YouTube. Um, no, I actually invite you to join me. Um, I'll just plug it right now. Every Saturday late afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central Time, um, we meet uh, right here. And the way you can connect to us is through the medium of Skype. So if you're using a desktop or a laptop computer, the, the easiest way is to just get a Skype account and get the Skype link from me. You can get the Skype link from my um, website. Um, just click on the live internet studies uh, link and it'll give you all the details about joining the Skype class. You just click on the Skype link and it'll load uh, the Skype uh, in your browser and, you know, bang, you're right there uh, live with us. So hope you can join us each Saturday late afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central Time. Just no matter what time zone you're in or where you're at in the world, just do a, a calculation against the Central Time Zone in America and you'll be able to meet with us. Okay. All right. This first 30-minute segment of an hour-long study is entitled Judaism v. Christianity, or are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? And we're winding down the study, so I'm not going to read the relevant passage like I've been normally doing, just for brevity's sake. But as you can see on my screen right now, we're working through a passage out of the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. And um, it's a story about Yeshua and his disciples and some parables about um, fasting and about wine and about clothing. 
So go back and read that story on your own. You can also pick up the uh, same story in Mark and in the book of Luke. Let's jump now and step straight into my commentary. This is also available on my website at tatesatora.com. I'll put a little flash, a little um, uh, logo uh, reveal with my, uh, the, so you can see my URL address for my uh, website, Tate Sator, in case you don't know how to spell that. So in this commentary that I put together, what we've been doing is we've been going through now the summary. So we're now in the summary section and we're, we've um, basically talked about how that we looked at four well-known and well-trusted Christian sources on the interpretation of this particular passage. Let's pick up my commentary again, where we're going to talk about the Messianic Jewish sources that I also used. Here's what I have to say. Having laid the foundation for an inquiry about historic Christianity's view on replacement theology, let me pause. The majority of this commentary and this study is about replacement theology, supersessionism, some forms of dispensationalism. So the overall kind of, um, uh, you, could, you could call it kind of a survey, as it were, of this particular branch of theology is this idea of replacement theology. And for those of you who have never heard of this before, uh, replacement theology, as you can even hear it in the name, it's the general consensus held by many Christians, not all, but many within Christian circles are of the impression that God, during the time of the New Testament, was bringing about a replacement of the old system of things. And this replacement would include, um, to some effect, it would include the replacing of the older people of God, which is Jewish Israel, with the newer people of God, Gentile Christianity, or the church. So that's one part of the replacement uh, package that was included in this discussion. Included with that would also be the replacement of the Old Testament with the New Testament, just the whole package there. The Tanakh, the Old Testament, gets swapped out for the body of writings known as the New Testament. Also being replaced is the Law of Moses. It gets replaced by the Law of Christ. So that's another part of the replacement. And then uh, lastly, but not, this isn't an exhaustive list, there's more I could probably list, but the Old Covenant is replaced by the New Covenant. So not just the body of writings, but even the covenantal um, relations that we have with God are swapped out. So this is all captured within this theology known as replacement theology. Now, fortunately, as far as I can ascertain, this is not really openly flagrantly um, taught in Christian circles, at least not in the terms that I'm using it, right? You don't hear pastors just saying, you know, thank God that the old has been ripped away and the new has been uh, um, um, set into place. Thank God, something like that. But we do have lots of discussion in Christian circles about we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, right? We don't have to keep the Torah anymore because we're not Israel, we're the church, so the, those discussions are still lively. They are taking place. They're still um, kind of um, alive and well on planet Earth in the 21st century. So um, even if you don't hold to a theology that has the name replacement in front of it, even if you've never heard that term or even if you've never heard your pastor talk about that, ask your pastor, are we still under the law of Moses? Do we still have to keep Sabbath, kosher, festivals, uh, you know, those types of things, circumcision for males? And if he tells you no, and if you ask him why, and if he says it's because, and he gives you one of two reasons, basically, either A, 
Jesus fulfilled those things. We don't have to do them anymore. Paul taught we're no longer in the law. We're under grace. Um, the law was nailed to the cross, etc., etc. He mentions one of those things, or and or along with that, he mentions that um, those things were for Jews or they're for a different dispensation. They were for Israel. They're not given to the church and not for Gentiles, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, you, know, you know, the other side of that coin. Then what he's doing is he's without, maybe even without saying it, he's, he's repeating some of the sentiments and the theology or the, the primary um, belief systems that are attached to this theology known as replacement theology. So this verse in Matthew has been used by historic Christianity to kind of purport the idea that what Jesus is bringing is something so radically new that it facilitated the um, or necessitated the disruption or replacement of the old system of things. And so that's kind of what we're discussing. So let's keep going in my contrary. So we talked about Christianity, historic Christianity's reviews of replacement theology. And I did this by presenting, I say, my commentary for easily accessible internet resources on a few parables found in Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And I, by design, I made them internet uh, accessibility because it's great to have these Bible tools like um, uh, Accordance or um, these Bible software tools, um, you know, um, so I can't remember some of the names of them, but they're, they're quite expensive. And you know, by ha- by me utilizing those, your average person who watches my videos or listens to my podcast can't always be able to follow along with the same tools that I'm using. And so they might say, "Well, well, you came to those conclusions because you looked them up with your tools and your and your concordances that were built into your um your software, your Bible software." But what about me, the average Joe who doesn't have those software? Aha! That's why I used internet resources. Why? Anybody can get to those, right? They're free. Uh, great for a budget like mine, which is zero. So um, anyone can look up the same resources that I looked up. And that's one of the reasons why I made them uh, the internet ones. But I continue to say in my commentary that um, after looking at those uh, uh, pastoral resources, we then turn to David Stern. The late uh, Dr. Stern, as I understand, just passed away just this year, just what is this, the month of November? I think he just passed away either last month or the previous month. That was very recent. So um, um, I'm saddened to hear about his passing. Uh, he lived in uh, Israel for the last part of his life. But he's the author, as I say in my commentary, he's the author of the complete Jewish Bible and the popular Jewish New Testament commentary. I, I have known both of them. And we did this in order to show how Yeshua could simply not have been challenging his first century Jewish parishioners with a choice to leave Judaism and embrace the coming, as it were, right? Uh, Christianity wasn't quite established just yet, at least not using that term Christianity like we know it today. So I call it coming in my resources, the coming religion of Christianity. And so we looked at David Stern's, um, Dr. Stern's perspective, and it was very helpful, even though I don't fully agree with everything he says and the conclusions he comes to. I think the, the foundational um, um, thrust of where he's coming from, I, I completely embrace, which is the idea that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law of Moses. He didn't come to do away with the people of Israel. He didn't come to offer a New Testament in contradistinction to an Old Testament unless, and here's the, here's, here's the exception, Depending on how you personally interpret the phrases Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, if you've got 
uh, your generic standard Christian interpretation of those words, then I disagree. No, Jesus didn't come to do away with those. But if you've got a more um, biblically accurate understanding of Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, per 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, then I would say, uh, yes, he did come to do away with the Old Covenant and the, the Old Testament. And again, I'm playing with, the, I, I realize there's some ambiguity. I'm playing with the equivocation on those phrases, Old Covenant uh, in ter Christian terms versus what I believe is a, a more biblically accurate view of how to interpret those terms. But what David Stern offered in that um, um in that look in his commentary, let me kind of highlight that. So in my summary, I say, what Yesh this is David Stern's the sentiments. What Yeshua was likely teaching instead was that in many ways, existing Judaism, corrupted as it had become by the first century, was nevertheless established by Hashem using the precepts of the Torah and was therefore of worth to God. And I use the word established there in, in quotes. What I'm trying to convey is that, and David Stern did this in his commentary, is that the lifestyle of your average Jew, both then and now, is rooted in the biblical mandates that were handed down from, Mo from God to Moses and from Moses to the rest of the people. So, biblical Judaism did its level best to try and um, shape their religious worldview around the commandments that God gave them as Israel, as a people group. Yes, they strayed from the path um, quite often and um, to the point where Yeshua had to bring them back in line, right? So by the time we get to the first century and Yeshua's walking the earth, um, biblical Judaism had, you know, lots of errors. They had lots of um, traditions that were built up around the Torah. They had lots of um, um, minutia, you know, halacha that was leading the people astray. And the, the, your average Jewish person probably couldn't make heads or tails sense of what God said versus what the rabbi down the street said. That, that they were so conflated. They were so overlapping. They were so uh, confusingly mixed together so that it was hard to really um, interpret God's word in its pure sense. And Yeshua being aware of that he came to cut through all of that nonsense and to bring the people back to a pure understanding of what God expected of his people when God gave the laws to Moses to be disseminated to the people. So that's kind of what I mean when I say that Judaism was structured or established by you know the laws of the Torah. God didn't tell them every single thing they needed to do. God expected that they would make up their own kind of traditions and halakha. That's kind of built into the text. But there were specific instructions that were to be carried out, and the people were finding loopholes. The rabbis and the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were finding ways, the, the, the corrupt priests, they were finding ways to, to uh, serve their own belly um, rather than to serve the people and to serve God in, in, in that way. So let's keep reading my commentary. What I say... However, because of this corruption, right, the first century corruption of Judaism, it badly needed to adjust itself to allow corrections to its structure in order to accommodate messianic faith. And so it's quite apparent that because Judaism was in need of repair by the time Yeshua hit the scene, he didn't need to, um, what do we say, disassemble the entire franchise. He didn't need to mothball that um uh, project, all right. He didn't need to 
um, shelve it and put it on back burner status. All he needed to do was reform it. And he did so by starting with the individual man and working from the inside out. Yeshua realized, just like we in Christianity realize, that the, that the basic problem of humanity has always been the same. It's the heart condition. God tells us so in his very word. The problem is the heart. The problem is the, the, the corrupt nature that we inherited from our Papa Adam that we carry along with us, right? This original sin. So the problem is where Yeshua put his finger. He went straight for the heart. Oftentimes when he's dialoguing with people like the rich young ruler, he'll start out with these surface level answers. You know, the guy asks him, says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Yeshua gives him a surface level answer. You want to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. That's kind of an odd answer because at face value, right? Uh, prima facie, um, at face level, at face value, at surface level, at first blush, you can't keep the commandments to inherit eternal life. And yet Yeshua answers them kind of cryptically. What Yeshua is doing is he's drawing this young man into a conversation about where is your heart at, son? Where is your heart? Are you simply trying to superficially gain access to something that you think is going to benefit your life, makes you kind of enhance your life, give you a kind of a step up on the ladder, you know, help you help you get that promotion that you've always been vying for, you know, help you get that bigger um, apartment that you're wanting to move into, you know, is this going to it's going to uh, increase your quality of life? That's why you want to keep God's words, you know, is that why you're asking about eternal life? Or like Yeshua often did, he would cut into the heart of the matter and by asking repeated questions really if you want to do this one how about this and just like we in the example i'm presenting he realized that there's really nothing inherently wrong with the law of moses yeshua never really threw the law of moses under the bus as far as i can tell he would go after the traditions of men he would um he would uh, scold people for um, confusing and conflating um, God's words with the words of, of humans, right? The traditions of the, and things like that, how that people were nullifying the traditions for their own, um, uh, nullifying the commandments of God for their own traditions, making void the word of God by their own traditions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in their, in their corrupted state where their heart was not right before God, they were lording over people as leaders, right? They were seeking the most beautiful places in the synagogue so they could show off how, how beautiful their garments and their tzitzit were and how rich they were and how supposedly blessed they were and how smart and intelligent they were. And, um, you know, uh, Yeshua says they, they lay all these heavy burdens on other people, but they don't lift, they don't have even one finger, lift one finger to help these people out. So there was a, there was a lot of hypocrisy going on. So Yeshua was keen on that. He knew about that, right? He had the eyes of the spirit and he could see the heart of people. So because of this, yes, Judaism was in need of repair, but the law of God is perfect. Yeshua knows that. The law of his father didn't need to be replaced by some supposed law of Christ. Let's keep reading my commentary. I go on to say, at the same time, the newly acquired messianic faith of an individual was expected to be adapted to existing Judaism as outlined by the Torah. For indeed, Yeshua was speaking to Jewish people and as the Jewish Messiah himself, right? Remember, don't ever forget that fact. He was the Messiah Firstly, to Jews, that's how he revealed himself. 
he was also the Messiah to the Gentiles, but he was firstly coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, because those were the promises that were revealed firstly to the people of Israel that God would send him, send them this uh, coming one, the right up one from among their brothers. So as their Jewish Messiah, uh, they did not imagine nor expect a Jewish Messiah who would come and establish a quote unquote new religion unless one chooses to narrowly define Messianic Judaism as new. So what I mean by that is, I'll flash this little graphic on the screen where it talks about, in the Tanakh, God was promising all these new things to Israel. Particularly when we get to Jeremiah, God says in, to, in chapter 33 that I'm going to establish a new covenant in the, in the coming days, right? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I'm paraphrasing, when I will establish a new covenant, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in this new covenant that God promises to Israel, was God really pulling a bait and switch where he says, I'm offering you Israel this new covenant, but really God has in his mind the New Testament. Understand what I'm saying there? He's baiting them with this new covenant that resembles the law of Moses. But when once they, once they, um, Take the bite, right? Once that fish is on the hook, then he swaps out that worm for actually um, the, the the bondage of um, the New Testament or something. I say bondage, but because you got you got to kind of approach this from the Jewish perspective. Um, religious Jews today feel that that's kind of what's going on with with missionaries when they um, come knocking on their doors and witness to them about Jesus. They say, "Ah, I see what you're doing." This is the the religious unbelieving Jews talking. I see what you're doing, Mister Missionary Christian. You're baiting me with the Old Testament and with the God of Israel. But really, once I take the bite, you're going to swap that bait out for becoming a Gentile Christian, Sunday-keeping, pork-eating Christian. Um, I have to leave my Judaism behind, blah, blah, blah. All right. That's, of course, all oversimplified. That isn't exactly what, what missionaries say, so don't misunderstand my analogy. But the point that I'm trying to bring up in my commentary at this, at, at this section is that when Jesus brought something radically new— it wasn't necessary to package that radical new thing as something that was foreign to the existing Jewish worldview that the people were already used to. It wasn't necessary for the for Yeshua to um, present something so outstandingly radically new. When I say radical, I'm not talking about a transformed heart. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When it comes to the new man, right? I had a section in my commentary, if you scroll back up, called Old Man, New Man, and Messianic Judaism. It is entirely accurate to describe the new man as radically new, right? When Paul says, "Behold," uh, or maybe it was Yeshua's words himself, Paul quoting, I can't remember, but um, all, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. It is true. Once you become saved, it's a radical transformation from the inside out, right? You are birthed anew. The, the, the old man is dead the new man is brought to life, right? It is, it is a born-again experience. It's called born-again for a reason. So, yeah, I understand that. And I take that into account when we talk about what did Jesus bring to the table of um, discussion and what was he offering uh, the people of Israel. Yes, it was a born-again experience. Don't, don't misunderstand me. However, in that born-again experience, what David Stern brought up and what I'm also affirming is that it's not necessary to leave Judaism behind as a religion, you can still be a Messianic Jew, be loyal to the covenants of Moses, walk in the Spirit of God, and affirm that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's entirely possible. Messianic Judaism, like you see in my little graphic that flashes across the screen during these studies, 
Messianic Judaism is not an empty set. Yes, you can be Messianic and Jewish at the same time. So was God offering a New Testament or New Covenant, right? Was he doing, pulling the bait and switch? That's what we talk, that's what I mean by uh, defining Messianic Judaism narrow, narrowly as new. I conclude this little paragraph by saying the prophecies of the Tanakh simply do not foretell of the coming Messiah's supposed desire to swap out Judaism with a brand new religion once he arrives. Granted, granted, the prophecies do foretell of the bringing in of a people group that's different than national Israel, and in this difference, they're going to be bringing different ideas to the room and to the family. So Abraham's family was going to grow. These are the prophecies that we read about. And it started all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham being told, uh, get up and get out. And so it's no secret. We know this in hindsight, but it was it was a mystery to, to national Israel. And I'll close with this particular, these particular sentiments. Um, or let me look at the last paragraph. Do I have time to read that? Yeah, I think I can read that as well. Um, Papa Abraham was told that through you all the nations will be blessed, right? God was going to make this man, Abraham, into a blessing. And God was not just going to bless his immediate family, but God was also going to be bringing in the nationals around him into this blessing family. And of course, we know that this blessing takes place through the seed known as Messiah Yeshua. He's the quintessential son of Abraham. But the point I'm trying to highlight for you is that in the bringing in of the nations, it wasn't necessary to displace Judaism as a religion. Yes, it was in need of repair, and we need to restructure some of the things. We need to adapt it, like David Stern talked about. That's what we talked about, the old wine and the new wine and the, the clothing metaphor and all, of, all that stuff. Yes, there needed to be some patching going on. However, um, bringing in the Gentiles didn't need to create a competing religion is the point I'm trying to uh, make. A religion that by, by all reckoning, according to Jewish people today, is foreign to uh, the biblical lifestyle that they've been uh, taught and raised with their entire life. And it goes both ways, just so you know. Christianity thinks that Judaism is foreign to their biblical worldview as well. So we have this kind of... Um, um disagreement from both sides of the table let's keep reading um i'm going to take the next uh five minutes or so and, and finish just this paragraph because it'll this will place me at the conclusion we're going to um meet next week and then we're going to take a break for a week during the thanksgiving um weekend so um uh this will be a perfect place to to break off i say in my commentary in an effort right we're still in summary in an effort to provide a well-rounded teaching on the passage in question we lastly cited the notes of tim haig right he's my favorite messianic jewish author go-to author when it comes to just about anything in the torah i can't recommend his teachings um more uh to you all out there he's just uh, just your your wealth of um of information and resource and scholarship that's the that's one of the reasons as i pause one of the reasons why i appreciate his resources so much it's not because i just like the guy i mean i do like him but and he's a friend of mine but the point i i'm trying to stress in highlighting uh his uh, resources over and over again is because from a christian perspective he's solidly grounded and the foundational aspects of our faith as Christians in Christianity, right? All of those um, foundational aspects that we need as well-grounded Christians. But at the same time, if you are a Hebraically-minded um, kind of Torah 
uh, community uh, person, if if that's uh, what you've come to understand the Bible to offer. I know not every Christian out there does, so that's why I'm trying to make the distinction. But if you are on the kind of the, the ancient uh, pads tract, right, Hebraic roots or Messianic movement, whatever label you want to call yourself, then Tim Haig is going to be helpful there because he's pro Torah all, all you know through and through. He's gonna uh, he's got you back there. So we looked at his notes and um, like I say in my uh, this uh, paragraph, he's a Messianic Jewish teacher at Congregation Beit Hallel in Tacoma, Washington. And what we did is using his notes on Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen, what we observed is that instead of introducing the poison of replacement theology, right, and I do call it poison, it's particularly poison for Jewish people. It might not seem like poison to many Christians because they're thinking, hey, right, this is this is this is new covenant, right? This is what I'm all about. New Testament, New Testament, go go go, yeah, right, Root, you know, rooting for the New Testament, and I'm fine with that, but. To the um, to the uh, expenditure and the loss of Judaism and the Tanakh. No, I'm not all for that. So instead of introducing the poison of replacement theology, and instead of hinting at the supposed abrogation of Judaism to the establishment of the up and coming religion of Christianity, and this is the sentiment held by most um, in replacement theology circles, and unfortunately and sadly by the four uh, Christian examples that I supplied in my commentary. What we found is that Yeshua's words are best explained from the context of the verses preceding Matthew 9, 14 through 17. So what we do is we back up, and what we'll do is we would see that the context of choosing and grooming a disciple was what our Lord had in view when he presented the subsequent parables that we read about uh, in Matthew, the parables about the unshrunk patch and the wineskins. So it's the, it's what's known as the twenty the biblical twenty twenty rule. Of course, the word twenty twenty is kind of a playoff of, you know, if you want to see more clearly, you need to have twenty twenty vision. When it comes to Bible studies, there's a rule known as the twenty twenty principle. You find a verse that you don't quite understand, or you have some question about. The twenty twenty principle says. Go 20 verses ahead of the verse that you just read. So keep reading 20 more verses and see if there's some elaboration on what you're trying to study. Or, and, or, you want to do both of them, go 20 verses prior to the verse you're reading. So you, what you're doing is, it's a clever way of saying, context is king. Context. So, by using context, um, using uh, uh, um, Tim Haig's resources, uh, this is what I have to say in my uh, summary. In this way, nothing in the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 passage supports an interpretation that leads to Judaism being destroyed and Christianity victoriously being recognized in its place. Nothing. Nothing in the context there. In fact, to compound things more, compound the matter, Yeshua didn't give us any overt um, parable uh, explanation. He didn't tell us what the parable means, what the parables stand for, like he does in other places where he'll, he'll shift into explanation mode for his disciples, right? He'll pull them off to the side and say, here's what it means. Or some, he didn't, he didn't always tell the, the general masses even what the parables meant. He often left them to, 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 um, ponder what the deeper meanings were to kind of bait them into following him and getting more um, explanation, more elucidation, more elaboration on what the kingdom of God principles were that he was often using parables to explain. So, um, uh, 
But the disciples were close to him, and so oftentimes they would keep traveling and he would stop and explain the parable to them. But he doesn't do that here. So by using the 2020 principle in context, we go 20, we scan the, the earlier parts of the chapter. Nope, nothing there about replacement theology. We scan the remaining um, verses of the chapter. Nope, nothing there about replacement theology. So it's a wonder why and how historic Christianity came up with the replacement theology allegory that they did. So I continue. Instead, what we find is Yeshua's words support the continuity of cultural Judaism for those Jewish people wishing to follow him, provided his followers surrender to a complete transformation of the heart, which is what I talked about earlier, right? Old man, new man, and Messianic Judaism. A complete transformation of the heart so that God the Father can actually write his laws on the inward parts, just like it says in Jeremiah 31, the passage about the new covenant, right? God says, I'm going to write my heart on write my laws on the inward parts. And it also mentions this again in Ezekiel chapter 36, another new covenant passage. So if the Father can write the laws on the inward parts, then what happens is a transformation will take place that will radically change the way those people will walk out the Torah, a transformation, I say, already prophesied in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, to name a few locations, a true Messianic Jew indeed. That's what we would end up with. So in my summary and drawing this part to a close, what we find is that the best way to interpret the passages is to keep Judaism there, right? We, we can use Judaism. It's helpful. It's necessary. And it's even appropriate for people who are calling, who call Jews, right? I mean, how else are Jews supposed to live, right? Live according to what Judaism is teaching. However, the word of God is designed to transform you and to radically bring about a new birth by the power of the spirit taking up residency within you. And in so doing, what the Spirit will do, and you go back and read those some of those references, go back and look them up on your own. What the Spirit of God will do is take you in, uh, into an about face, staring right back into the face of the law of God, right? The laws of Moses are right there again, after your eyes have been opened to who Yeshua truly is. And in so doing, the Word of God will empower, I'm sorry, the Spirit of God will empower you as a new man to not walk contrary to laws of God, but actually fulfill them and walk into the laws of God. You will actually become more Torah obedient. At least that's the way God designed it. So if that's not what happened when you got saved, then the problem, the deficiency isn't on God's part or on the part of the Spirit. You need to check yourself, right? You might have a problem. We'll stop right there. Draw this part of my commentary or my uh, live study to a close. Um, we're poised now next week to begin looking at these um, my concluding thoughts, but that'll do it for Judaism versus Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture at Congregation Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. 
I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. This is the second 30-minute segment of an hour-long study that I encourage you to stick around for the entire hour-long study. There's two ways you can engage in the hour-long study. One of those ways is to join us live each week during the live internet studies. Join me via Skype. Set your calendar and your um, clock for Saturday late afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central Time and um, you'll be able to join us for these live internet studies that they're brought via Skype. The second way you can engage in the, in the full hour-long study is to simply wait for me to upload the full hour-long study to my YouTube channel, which gets uploaded typically on Saturday mornings or so, something like that, um, uh, the week after I've done the study. So you have to wait a whole, almost a full seven days to get the full study. It takes me a while to do all the editing. But this is the second 30-minute study five parts uh, so we're on part one of five and um we just finished looking through basically the entire study and uh we went through kind of a, a review of the entire study last week so go back and listen to last week's um uh, study episode number 197 with all of the parts there 129 part one through five we're now ready to start looking at this what i call excursus kind of a um a digression as i'm going to mention it's supplemental materials, what it is. It's not absolutely critical to the, to the study uh, as a whole that you engage in this part, but I encourage it as the author of the study um, to continue along. Don't tune us out yet. Don't say, well, okay, finish with the study. This is still uh, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. So this particular segment, if this were ever turned into a book, which I pray the Lord that it would become a book one of these days, but for now it's not. It's still just an essay an online uh, internet study, a commentary. If it turns into a book one day, this will be a chapter heading, or at least a paragraph heading, or something like that. But it's entitled, Section 8, Excursus Ruach Within versus Ruach Upon. And the word Ruach 
is the word for spirit or breath or wind. And since we're talking about the Holy Spirit, that's what we're going to talk about. What I also want to do tonight, if I remember and if I have time, is I want to begin to whet your appetite towards the idea that I'm going to be undertaking a kind of review or um, critical look at uh, biblicalunitarianism.com. Let me just show it to you right now. Biblicalunitarianism.com is a popular website for biblical Unitarians to go to when they're seeking to explain the Bible from a non-Trinitarian perspective. What they put together is a resource on their website um, where they take popular Trinitarian passages and they refute them from the biblical Unitarian perspective or they explain it. It's not always really a refutation. It it really it really is just a simple alternate explanation or or um um assertion in many cases. Uh, in other words, they don't always um exegete the passage, but they offer an alternate explanation. So what they're trying to say is that if you are biased towards the trinitarian perspective and you've never heard the biblical unitarian alternative, you might want to give this website a look. That's what they are trying to offer. They're trying to say, hey, the Bible doesn't have to be assumed in a Trinitarian perspective. So they offer all these verses. And so what I want to do is I want to turn right back around and take the very same passages that Trinitarians like to which the biblical Unitarians refute, and I want to refute the refutation. I want to turn around and say, um, actually, there's a different way and a better way. And there's a reason why we Trinitarians view the verses that we do. And so they've got a lot from the Old Testament that they talk about, um, maybe a dozen. And then from the New Testament, again, another maybe two dozen there. Obviously, most of the Trinitarian passages, as you see me scrolling, almost maybe three dozen, are going to be from the New Testament. So what I want to do, perhaps over the next coming year, and keep my uh, exegeting, uh, I'm sorry, um, exploring the Shema study kind of going, but spinning off in a slightly different direction. I might change the format a little bit. Is I want to refute the the rep, the um, the biblical Unitarian worldview, the the not worldview. I'm sorry, their perspective on these verses. I want to I want to challenge them. I want to provide my own answer to their answer. So that's what I mean by that. Challenging the the anti-Trinitarian perspective. I haven't figured out what I'm going to call the study yet, but tonight, if I remember, we might take a bite out of that tonight by looking at Genesis 1-1, the first verse that they um, talk about. And the reason I might mention that is because in my own study here about excursus ruach within versus ruach within, we're actually going to talk about Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So let's jump into the commentary and see how far we can get. All right, so this is excursus, ruach within versus ruach upon. It's primary discussion about the idea, was the Holy Spirit upon people in the Old Testament in, as compared to the Holy Spirit being within people in the New Testament, and why would that matter if, in fact, that is the case, like many Christians are often taught. All right, so let's jump into my commentary. Here's what I have to say. Lastly, I would like to borrow some material from other commentaries that I've written to provide a digression of edifying information on the Ruach HaKodesh, which is just Hebrew for the Holy Spirit. Ruach is the Hebrew word for breath, wind, or spirit, and HaKodesh is the word for the phrase for the Holy, so the Holy Spirit, or, or the Spirit of Holiness, if you want to translate it that way. 
So this is an idea digression of edifying information on the Holy Spirit from the argument of whether or not the Holy Spirit was present within the people in the time period of the Tanakh, as I say, compared to the time period of the apostolic scriptures. And when I say apostolic scriptures, what I mean is, i.e., the um, New Testament. Or, I ask, was he actually within folks back then, the same as he is in believers now? And why or why not should it matter to us today? So this is the study. It is going to have Trinitarian overtones. When I originally wrote the study, it was not intended to be a complement to the Trinity study uh, that we just embarked on. But in hindsight now, I decided that it carries some Trinitarian um, information that's helpful because oftentimes we like to split the Bible up into two pieces, Old and New Testament. And in so doing, we are actually fueling the arguments that are made by biblical Unitarians that the Trinity is an invention of the later biblical writers or the later Christian fathers or some the church fathers. But if we can instead begin to see that the Bible has this unified picture of God dealing with us, even when it comes to placing a spirit within us and upon us, right, in, in, in the unified biblical sense, what we're doing is we're championing the, the views that I'm often um, fond of utilizing, which is reading the Bible in its entirety and reading the Bible authoritatively from, from one end to the other. These are the two phrases that I'll flash on the screen. I'll put a little picture of Dr. James White. And what he's saying is, we must adhere to sola scriptura and tota scriptura. And the reason why those are important is because the Bible must be read in its entirety if we want to understand it. I realize it wasn't all available to the writers when it was being penned, right? That's that's true. We have a perspective now that they didn't have then, but that's why it's somewhat progressive from their perspective. God was giving them more and more as, as time went on. But by God's grace, he also knew that we would come on the scene and we would eventually have the entire corpus of literature available for us to access. So God anticipated sola scriptura and tota scriptura. He realized that we were going to have the entire um, uh, uh, Bible available for us as a people of God, right? He didn't leave us without that resource. If we allow that the entire Bible can speak to us from from one end to the other, then we're not going to try to, in a skeptic fashion, hit one verse against another. Instead, we're going to try to harmonize the two verses together, realizing that in Toto Scriptura and Sola Scriptura, that all of God's Word is authoritative and it works, it's designed to work together uh, from one end to the other. And so, this particular study on the Holy Spirit is going to be within that same um, mindset, is the entire Bible works together. So, the first thing I have to say is that we realize that the very first mention of the Ruach in the Torah is in Genesis 1 2. And so, let's just read some, um, let's just read this. Uh, the Hebrew says, And um, I've reproduced not just the Hebrew, but also the transliterated Hebrew, which says the same. And the translation reads, And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. So this is our first encounter with the Spirit in the Bible. And something that's sometimes lost to us as Bible readers, but apparently was not lost to the biblical authors themselves, particularly the Hebrews, was 
this idea of localization of God and his attributes and God and his actions. So the Hebrews were already raised with this idea that God was um, incorporeal. He had no body parts. He had no physical um, um, form that could be uh, viewed or seen or or interacted with. He was pure spirit. Um, that's the perspective that I gain from when I read through the Bible, that, that God emphasizes, right? You saw no form on the mountain he told Moses. Um, you know, when I gave you the words, the Ten Words and things like that, when I wrote out the Ten Commandments, you didn't see anything. And thus, the biblical writers echo the same sentiment, right? And when we get to the New Testament, no one has seen God, no one can see God, etc., etc. God's invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so, the idea is that God instead interacts with humans through the natural, right? He breaks into the natural in what we would call either a theophany or something like that. But also, in addition to theophanies, where we have either like an angel lord encounter or a burning bush some type that, that type encounter or like today's parasha parasha dvayera genesis 18 where the three men approach abraham at the oaks of mamre and it's three men that he looks up and sees but we know that from further reading the text that one of those men is actually uh yod right which is god himself hashem the point I'm bringing up, however, is that when God interacts with his creation, like we have here in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, God's creating, and God speaks, and God moves, and God does these, these verbal um, actions, the writers of the Bible understand that, similar to humans, that we anthropomorphize God. The Spirit of God hovered. But wait a minute, if the Spirit is pure Spirit, if God is pure Spirit, then He's everywhere at the same time. He's omnipresent. Why would He have to localize His presence by saying He's hovering? Are you understanding the, the analogy I'm painting here? The, the inside, um, uh, inside look at the Scriptures, the kind of more deeper uh, view and interpretation? God somehow chose to as it were, spatially move his spirit from where he was at point A to point B, and yet still remain at point A at the same time. So the first verse said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then the second verse says that the spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters. Why didn't Moses simply say, and God hovered over the surface of the waters? If, in fact, the spirit of God, like the biblical Unitarians want us to believe, is simply another way of describing God himself, who is pure spirit. So we recognize that God the Father is spirit, and we recognize that the Holy Spirit is spirit. So there's, we're talking about spirit and spirit, right? There's no, there's no um, incarnational um, uh, human being known as Jesus, second person of the Trinity that, that's in discussion at the moment. We're just talking about spirit and spirit, first person, third person. If the Holy Spirit is simply another way of describing the spirit of God who is God the Father, right? Another, another terminology for the same uh, person, you know, in other words, the numerically um, identical to the same person. If the Spirit of God is numerically identical to God the Father, what the biblical Unitarians purport, then why didn't Moses just write, God created the heavens and the earth and God hovered over the surface of the water? Ah, humans understand this perspective a bit when we take what comes out of our mouth and we observe the localization of this. I'm, I'm kind of going off in a little bit of a midrash here, but just follow me. I can take a balloon and blow my breath into the balloon and then seal off the balloon, tie it off, and realize that what's holding the, bl the balloon 
in the inflated state is my breath. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach, by the way. So, so in a midrashic sense, you could say I've moved my spirit or my breath from inside my lungs to inside the balloon. I've localized the breath from point A to point B. I've pushed it. I've moved it from one position to another position, from one location to another location. And so I'm now able to hold this balloon and inside the balloon, the inflated balloon, is the very breath that used to be inside my lungs. Now, there's no, no, um, no difficulty in understanding that concept, that I can breathe out and push my wind from point A to point B and have it reside in a different location than it where it started. That's kind of what happened when the biblical writers began to further contemplate how is it that God, who is spirit, can breathe his spirit into a location different from where he is and the spirit now be in two different locations simultaneously, but not in the um, omnipresent sense of the word where it was always there to begin with. The, 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 the ancient rabbis kind of struggle with the idea that if God was ever at the same time, how could he create something out of nothing? Where was the nothing that he created into? And so they, they have this discussion, maybe I'll flash it on the screen, one of the resources, where he kind of took a breath in, and in his inhale, this is all Midrash, by the way, so this is not in the text, this is Midrash, where they're trying to figure out how is it God can create ex nihilio, something out of nothing. And what they come up with is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, is basically what God is, he inhaled for a split second, and when he inhaled, it created a vacuum of nothingness, to which he then exhaled his spirit and his creative forces, and he began to speak the very universe into existence. This is kind of their, their Midrashic kind of um, philosophical kind of esoteric explanation of how the God who is in fact everywhere at the same time created something out of nothing. Where did that nothingness come from? It wasn't the Big Bang like the Big Banger say it was. Unless you want to say God spoke and bang, it happened. There's where the Big Bang was, right? God spoke and bang, it happened. But other than that, God created something out of nothing. But if God is everywhere, then where was the nothingness that God created something out of, right? That's kind of the, the, the philosophical discussion. So the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters, and yet God is still wherever he was when he was um, creating heavens and the earth. He's still in the heavens, as it were, and yet his Spirit is now going out from him and doing this creative work of hovering over the surface of the waters and beginning to work its magic, as it were, the Spirit of God in concert with the Word of God, who we later on know to be um, the eternal Word, the Logos, Yeshua, uh, pre-incarnate, right? So that's kind of what's going on, is as we begin to continue to read down through the rest of the Bible, the biblical writers didn't have any problem realizing that God actually is moving his Spirit from himself onto people or within people and so now the spirit can become localized in those those um those um of uh near closer uh locations those those earthly locations instead of always being confined to the heavens where god himself dwells so just like i said like yeshua breathed on the apostles and the holy spirit came upon them right in that upper room experience in, in the book of acts and in that, in, similar to my analogy of breathing into the balloon, Yeshua probably went through the motions. He probably, you know, 
breathed out onto the apostles. I mean, if I take it at face value, it says he breathed on them. And yet we're to understand that there's this impartation of the Spirit of God upon them as it's demonstrated in this localized action of him breathing upon them. He's trying to almost say to them, look, I'm taking the Spirit which is in me and I'm pushing it into you. It's going from where I'm at and I'm not losing any of it, but you are gaining part of it. So now he's going to live within you and dwell within you. And I'm going to go back and be with the Father at the right hand. And I'm going to be up in heaven. But you are going to continue to have this spirit in you right here on planet Earth. So that now the spirit is where I'm at and he's where you're at. Right? Not having this philosophical discussion about the spirit is everywhere at the same time. Right? Is there anywhere where God isn't? The answer is no. Thus, if God is pure spirit, is there anywhere in the universe where God isn't? No. So God's spirit is everywhere as well. And yet at the same time, we don't have any um, uh, argument, any uh, difficulty understanding that God's spirit can localize, can be in point A and point B and move from here to there. And the same thing happens with the wind. I can walk outside my door and there can be wind right at, right at my door. And yet 20, 30 feet down the road in front of me, there might be no wind or vice versa. I could look across the street and see the wind blowing the trees I might not feel it right where I'm at. How is this possible? Because the wind can blow here and there, and it can be everywhere, and it can be only in point A and point B. It's like the wind. It's like the spirit. It's like the breath. It can be in in two different places and more than one place, and it can be absent from one place, as it were. That's this kind of uh, beginning of this discussion of first person and third person. God can dispatch his spirit. God can dispatch his eternal word. All right, we spent a lot of time there. So let's read this uh, uh, second paragraph in my commentary. I say the word that's translated as hovered in our verse uh, two of chapter one is merachefet. And the root word is rachaf. And I say in my commentary that it actually conveys a sense of shaking or moving or fluttering, right? And if I were to click on the, uh, the footnote there, 49, um, the link there will probably take me to the uh, the lexicon source that I pulled this resource, this info from, and the description in the in the um, lexicon about this particular action that the spirit is undertaking is this: um, the action is actually as when a bird softly relaxes its flight to alight upon its young, and it actually it adequately describes the actions of the ruach, the spirit. I say as he lovingly and closely watches over the created substance. How so? Well, this verb, as we find, although found three times in Scripture, is defined as hovering only one other time in the entire Tanakh. So it's a, it's not a very widely used word, but it's interesting that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use this word hovering when it talks about the Holy Spirit because of the loving picture that it paints. So let's look at that real quick. Let's use that uh, reference in the Tanakh where this word is found the only other time. Uh, it translated as hovering. Quote, he found his people in desert country in a howling, wasted wilderness. This is speaking of God, right? Um, he protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye. Ready for this? Like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers. There's our word, marachefet, rachaf. Like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers over her young, spreads out her wings, takes them, and carries them as she flies. So, 
the reference uh, of this passage is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 and 11. And so, um, it's a beautiful verse. And what I say in my uh, commentary is that this beautiful illustration of the protective power of the Spirit in relation to his children, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel in the verse, as they traveled through the wilderness, it reminds me, the author, of the same spirit that hovered, right, Rachaf, the Hebrew word Rachaf is um, parsed out, or the case shows up as Melchefet, uh, past tense, um, uh, uh, of, of the verb, that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. And again, we're recognizing that Moshe, I believe, wants us to picture in our mind that God is still enthroned in heaven, and yet he breathes out his spirit, and the spirit is dispatched and hovers over the surface of the waters in this loving fashion, like a, like a mother eagle hovers gently over its young, right? Softly hovers before it drops down. I'll put a little graphic of an eagle kind of flying and hovering over its young in my uh, uh, video in post-production. And so I think Moshe wants us to kind of capture that picture in our minds. The same idea that the, that the spirit is both very God, but yet moving from God to where uh, the, the newly formed earth is in this kind of protective fashion, because the earth is kind of still, remember it's void, unformed and void, right? Darkness is over the surface of the deep. It's, it's kind of in... Um, uh, it's vulnerable, as it were, the, the, the freshly formed earth. It's, it's vulnerable to, to whatever um, darkness uh, that, that might represent. You know, it says dark, uh, unformed and, and void, tohu vavohu, which are strange words in the Hebrew. We'll talk about that a different day. But I go on to say that the word translated hovers in our above verse in Deuteronomy is actually the same root as the one used in Genesis 1-2. It's rachaf. And so um, that we can instantly begin to make some kind of connection between the two passages. In fact, I say in my commentary in closing here, by the way, to strengthen the connection between the two applications, right? The one in Genesis and the one in um, Deuteronomy. The haftara to brishit is actually Isaiah 42, 5 through 43, 10. And uh, in case you don't know, I actually explain uh, myself here. A haftarah is actually a prescribed reading portion from the prophets and writings, and it was chosen by the ancient rabbis to complement the Torah portion. So we have a chosen Torah portion that's read every Sabbath day um, from the five books of Moses. And then in a complementary fashion, a haftarah, which is what the word haftarah is rooted in, the word uh, heftir, which means to complete, it doesn't mean half of a Torah, com- contrary to what your um, pastor might have told you, or your Messianic rabbi might have told you, a haftarah is a half of a Torah. That's not what it is. It comes from the Hebrew word for uh, complete, heftir. A haftarah portion was prescribed to complement the Torah portion, something with the a similar theme or similar wording or something like that. And so what happens, I say in my commentary, is in this passage, um, in Isaiah, in the haftarah portion, we read in the opening 17 Hebrew words, a summary of the first chapter in, where is it? Genesis. Let's read this passage, and then um, we'll call it quits. Oops, let's try that again. I say, and this is a quote from Isaiah's Haftar portion to Genesis. Quote, Thus says God, Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth 
and all that grows from it, right? Sounds like creation. Who gives breath, there's our Hebrew word for spirit, breath, ruach, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Actually, in this particular passage, the Hebrew word for breath there is probably not ruach, probably nefesh. I'll have to look it up in a moment. Because otherwise it was a breath and spirit and it would be uh, ruach and ruach. Um, but uh, the reference is Isaiah 42, uh, 5 through 43, 10. So, um, what I'm only only trying to emphasize in closing is that the Spirit of God is present at creation. We're going to see as we begin to study this out that all three persons of the triune God were present during creation. We have a passage in the book of Job that I want to look at next week where Job says the Spirit of God created me. And he uses a Hebrew word that can be translated as created. It can also be translated just as fashioned or formed. But if the Spirit was present during creation, which he was, Job says the Spirit of God created me. Is Job talking about the third person of the Trinity, or is he simply talking about God the Father? Well, the answer is, in one sense, he is talking about God the Father, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God is the one who's given credit for going on to create humans, right? Male and female, he created them. And yet, Job says the Spirit of God created me. Did Job have an inside uh, understanding of how God's Spirit can actually be localized, can be um, um, sent forth in agency fashion, uh, separate from God to do the bidding and the will of God? Perhaps so. I think he did. But we'll look at that next, that next week as we continue reading through this excursus on the um, Holy Spirit. The Ruach within versus Ruach upon. That'll do it now for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to our um, liturgy, and um, we're going to do something a little different. Last two weeks, I've been reading English and Hebrew and Greek, and what I started out with is Genesis 1-1 in the English, and then I turned to John 1-1 in the English, and then last week I read Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew, and then I turned to John 1-1 in the Greek, and this week, as I promised last week, now I'm going to do something really wild. I'm going to turn to Genesis 1-1 in the Greek, and then John 1-1 in the Hebrew. You guys understanding? You following me? We're reversing the languages here. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the first five verses in Genesis, and we're going to read the first five verses in John. And in Genesis we have a Greek rendering of the original Hebrew, a Greek translation called the Septuagint, which was made available nearly 200 years before the New Testament itself, uh, near the time period that when Yeshua hit the scene in the, in, in the first century. We had a Greek translation that was already being circulated and in use by Greek-speaking Jews called the Septuagint. And there are two versions that are out there, two main versions. There are some other minor versions. Um, uh, two manuscript families that we could choose from. I'm just going to choose from one of them. And so if you look at your screen right now, what I've got is, let me see, can I make that bigger? Can I get a little bigger? Uh, can I get, yeah, I think I, uh, safe I can get a little, make the the, um, the screen a little larger there, the font. Um, what, I, what I've got on this page is English up here on the top. I've got Hebrew kind of in the middle. And then I've got some Greek on left and right side of the page. And then, as you can see, I've got some English on the bottom there. I'm not going to read any of the English or any of the Hebrew. I'm only going to focus on the Greek, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 from the Greek. And so, uh, let me see, can I park it right there? 
Yeah, I think that'll work. All right, so you can see the English and the Hebrew, but I'm only going to read the Greek. Okay, you guys ready? This will be our liturgy for tonight. The Greek says, of verse 1, I'm not going to read the English. You can read it on your own. It's there on the page. But the Greek says, In arche epoiasin hotheos ton uranon kaitain gain. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter uh, 1. I think I'll go like that. That way everybody can see. Verse 2 right there says, Hey, dege ein aoratas kai akataskuastas kai skatas epano tes abusu kai pneumatheu epiferato epano tu hudatas. Verse 3 right there. Oops, didn't catch all of it. Well, verse 3 says, Kai apen hothaos genetheto phos. Kai agenato phos. And verse 4 says, Kai aden hothaos to phos hati kalan. Kai dia korosin hothaos ana meson tu photos. Kai ana meson tu scatus. And then the final verse, verse 5, says, Kai ekalas in hotheos tofos, himeran kai ta skatas ekalas in nukta, kai egenato espera, kai egenato proi, himera mia. That'll do it for the Greek of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now let's use a web resource from sarshalom.us, which is a messianic congregation that is available online. And they've got a rendering of one of the Greek, uh, one of the Hebrew renderings from the original Greek. There are a number, probably about a half a dozen, semi-reliable versions of the Hebrew. Uh, some of them go back hundreds of years old, and some are more modern Hebrew. But this is a version that's kind of right in the middle, if I remember. I don't remember exactly which version. I'll tell you later on if I, if I remember. Maybe I'll jump down to the bottom of the page and find out. But this is a rendering of the, Gr- Hebrew in, of the Greek into Hebrew. So let's read this. John 1, verse 1. You can see there's English on the right side of the page, but I'm not going to read that. Um, I'm just going to read the, the Hebrew over on the uh, left side of the page there. So starting at verse 1, John 1, 1 in the Hebrew says, Breshit haya hadavar, v'hadavar haya et ha-elohim, hadavar haya Elohim. Verse 2 says, Hul haya merosh et ha-elohim. Verse 3 Kol hamaasim nihu al yado ve'en davar asher naasa mi baladaiv. Verse four says, "Bo nimza chayim v'ha'chayim him or ha'adam." And verse five says, "V'ha'or zoreach b'choshek v'ha'choshek lo yechilenu." And that'll do it for the Greek, I'm sorry, for the Hebrew of this particular rendering. Let me drop all the way down to the bottom of the page. And it says, as far as uh, Hebrew, this is, here we go, it says right here, the Hebrew source is the Salkinson Ginsburg Hebrew New Testament. That's the source for that particular Hebrew that I read there. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the um, uh, short little video for tonight. And after we watch the video, then we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go.
Admittedly, many believers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, confess to having a superficial grasp of the subject of sacrifices and atonements when compared and contrasted to the once and for all sacrifice of Yeshua our Messiah. While not exhaustive, these short YouTube videos on the topic of sacrifices are nevertheless meant to hopefully nudge the average Christian towards a deeper and greater appreciation for this central part of our Bibles. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. They bring lots of questions and I bring some of the answers and hopefully my answers are accurate. Here's our question on the uh, table for tonight. If the Jewish people do not offer, offer on animal sacrifices, how do they believe they can receive forgiveness from God? No blood, no animals. Are they being forgiven? Well, even though I'm a Messianic Jew, that is one who's embraced his Messiah, Yeshua Jesus, allow me to speak as a traditional non-Messianic Jew for a moment in order to answer this question that we've posed. Please don't get confused, people. I don't reject Messiah's atonement for my sins. This is only a general answer from a traditional Jewish perspective. So we're going to hop through um, some general Jewish questions and standard Jewish answers. Question, how do Jews obtain forgiveness without sacrifices this is a big question that many christians try to wrap their mind around what do the jewish people do do today without the animal sacrificial system here's one of the answers forgiveness is obtained through repentance prayer and good deeds in jewish practice prayer has taken the place of sacrifices in accordance with the words of hosea we render instead of bullocks the offering of our lips that's hosea 14:3. and judaism likes to note that the kjv translates this verse somewhat differently than the way traditional jews translate the verse but while dedicating the temple king solomon also indicated that prayer could be used to obtain forgiveness that's first kings 8 46 through 50. They go on to say that their prayer services are in many ways designed to parallel the sacrificial practices. For example, Judaism has an extra service on Shabbat to parallel the extra Shabbat offering that we read about in the Torah. It's important, Judaism says, to note that in Judaism, sacrifice was never the exclusive means of obtaining forgiveness, was not in and of itself sufficient to obtain forgiveness, and in certain circumstances was not even effective to obtain forgiveness. This is their answer. Second question, but isn't blood sacrifice required to obtain forgiveness? This is kind of a Christian way of viewing the the, the topic that uh, at hand today. And so we need to address this question as well. Their answer is no. Although animal sacrifices is one means of obtaining forgiveness, there are non-animal sacrifices as well. And there are other means for obtaining forgiveness that do not involve sacrifices at all. So non-animal offerings were made available in the Torah. Besides prayer, mere study of the sacrifices, Judaism says, mere study uh, constitutes participation. We just have to study the sacrifices in order to participate. The passage that people ordinarily cite for the notion that blood is required for or, uh, for sacrifice is Leviticus 17.11, which reads, quote, For the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that atones for the soul, end quote. So this is a very familiar passage out of the book of Leviticus, and it seems to be what Christianity calls a chair passage, but Judaism differs with the context of the passage. What do they say? The passage that this verse comes from is not about atonement, Judaism says. It is about dietary laws. And the passage says only that blood is used to obtain atonement, not that blood is the only means 
for obtaining atonement. See how they skirt around the passage. Again, these are answers from a traditional Jewish perspective. Their translation is that uh, this verse could be paraphrased as, quote, don't eat blood because blood is used in atonement rituals, therefore don't eat blood. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for, uh, primarily I thank you for your word, but I also thank you for the study. I thank you for the students who join me week after week. And I thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. Continue to bless us, strengthen us, raise us up, give us an opportunity to share uh, our witness with those people around us who don't know. Lord, help us to be ever aware that there are so many people that we meet on a day-to-day basis who are simply walking in confusion, in darkness. Their eyes have not been opened. They do not know the God of the universe, the God who created them, the God who breathed life into their lungs. They don't know you, Lord. And yet we... As your ambassadors, we are your hands. We are your feet. As Whiteheart, uh, the old CCM uh, Christian music group used to say, we are your hands. We are your feet. We are your people. We are your ambassadors, Lord. You've given us this task of taking your good news to those people around us. So give us divine encounters and give us a um, a sense of, of, of the lost people around us so that we can um, have a, 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 um, a desire to witness to those people. Um, help us along on this journey. Um, we're going to stumble as we go, but we trust that you will forgive us where we fall short and that you'll continue to strengthen us by your spirit in, 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 uh, in those areas where we do need um, strengthening. Um, take us throughout this week uh, safely and bring us back together next week refreshed. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Oh,